I'm Adam Davidson, and this is the very first episode of my new podcast, The Passion Economy. This is a show I've wanted to do for a very long time. It's an idea that formed even before I created Planet Money at NPR, though in the last decade, I never was able to come up with a tight, concise tagline. That took some work. The passion economy. The economy sucks. Passion economy. But you don't have to. Passion economy. Yes, you are going to lose your job. No, 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 no. Passion economy. How to make at least a bit of money. Let me just do a couple more. The passion economy. The show where we talk to regular people who have figured out how to thrive in an economy that seems stacked against us. That's actually not that bad. We've spent the last few weeks asking ourselves, does it make any sense to launch a podcast about how to succeed in this new economy when there's this pandemic, there's self-isolation, and the economy seems near freefall? And the answer is yes. A big, enthusiastic, absolutely. Now is exactly when people need inspiration and clear models of how to succeed in an economy that is operating according to different and much scarier rules. In fact, the ideas that we'll learn about in this show were born in crisis. They first started to take shape for me when I was an economics reporter in Baghdad in 2003 and 2004. They developed during the financial crisis of 2008, and they are feeling more relevant than ever during the COVID-19 crisis. Each episode of this show will feature someone inspiring, someone who has figured out a way to thrive during a time of chaos and uncertainty. These are people who figured out something at once simple and miraculous, how to create a business or a career built around their unique skills and passions. Now, these will not be people who are billionaires and CEOs of Fortune 500 companies. That's a pet peeve of mine that so many business books, business podcasts feature these once-in-a-generation success stories, these people who run huge companies and fly around in private jets. Sure, they have interesting stories, but I've never thought they were very applicable to most of our everyday lives. I always thought it would be much more helpful and really more interesting to focus on regular people. So we're going to talk to a drug dealer who's turned into a fitness mogul, a teacher making waves in the fashion industry, and a surprising number of very creative farmers. They're all successful. They're quite successful. But they're more like an average person, like you. You will find yourself in their stories. You will learn lessons from each of them that you can apply to your own life and business. One of the ideas you'll hear a lot on this show is that passion businesses and passion careers often do come out of times of crisis when an old familiar way stops working. And they also come out of times of self-reflection, periods when people have the time to think and wonder and experiment. This current crisis, for all its real pain, is offering, forcing us time to look at how things are done normally and imagine how they might be done differently. And this first episode is an overview. 
I want to give you some background on this idea that I've come to call the passion economy and also about me and the things I've seen that made me think there was a way to live that is better than the way a lot of people are living right now. I've been a journalist for 30 years, most of that time covering business and economics. I was at Marketplace, the public radio show, then at NPR, then the New York Times, and most recently, The New Yorker. And most of my work was focused on the many problematic things in our economy, all the things that are broken, that are unfair and unjust. And of course, I see all of that. I know all of that. And that is very important to know about and talk about. But I also see something else that I have not had as much of a chance to explore in my work until now, until this podcast and also a book I wrote that's out called The Passion Economy. It's something that makes me more hopeful, more optimistic, even now. This idea started to take shape in an unexpected place. Baghdad, Iraq, in 2003. I was there as a reporter for Marketplace. I didn't cover battles or violence. I was there to cover the transformation of Iraq's economy. It had been one of the most centrally controlled economies under Saddam Hussein, and suddenly, after the U.S. invasion, was a wide-open economy. That year had a huge impact on me, in no small part because I was falling in love with Jen Banbury, an American journalist who is now my wife. But beyond that, it also shaped the way I saw Iraq's economy, but eventually how I understood the U.S. and the global economies. To help tell the story, I'll bring in my friend Amjad Rajeb. Hello, Amjad. Shalanek. Ya Habibi. Hello. Amjad Rajeb is now the owner of a limo company outside Washington, D.C., my company name is uh, Waze Executive Saddam. I'm based out of South Riding, Virginia. I cover Virginia, Maryland, and uh, D.C. area. And you're in a limo right now? I am in a limo right now, yes. Eventually, the Iraq war would force my friend to leave his country. It would make him a refugee and then an entrepreneur in the United States. But before all that, Amjad was my translator. We spent a year driving around Iraq, trying to understand how the country had changed. Saddam's statue falls. Uh-huh. I arrived in Baghdad soon after that, and there was a few days of real quiet. Nobody's, very few people are leaving their house. There's still gunfire on the streets. But starting the next week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, people are emerging mm. into this new world, yes. right? And very soon, you and I became partners. Yes. <laughs> you were my translator, my bodyguard, my twin brother. And I feel like the main thing we kept hearing was, what are the new rules? <laughs> what is the new system, right? Yeah, before the Americans. I mean, basically, the economic rules were everything was under the control of the state. If you want to do the business, you are strongly tied with the government. Even if you are working with the private sector, one way or another, you're going to have to have like some ties with the government in order for you to be able to do your job. But after the war, you know, everybody can open a business. Amjad said a lot there. It boils down to this. Before Saddam was overthrown, most businesses in Iraq were owned by the Iraqi government. And even the tiny private sector was really little more than a corrupt adjunct to the Iraqi government. Remember, the ruling party, Saddam's Ba'ath Party, was socialist. Saddam had carefully studied Joseph Stalin. He tried to model himself and the whole country after Stalin and the USSR. 
in its darkest, most centrally controlled period, down to that big, bushy mustache. Saddam fell, and there really were no rules governing the economy. Suddenly, anyone could open a business, sell whatever they wanted. And that was actually a really difficult transition for a lot of people, as Amjad put it. Living under a dictatorship for four years, and then all of a sudden somebody is kicking you, wake up, you're free. It's not like an easy feeling anybody can realize, okay? There was this one day that really highlighted this transition for me. I'd only been in the country a few days, and I found myself at what seemed like the only factory in Baghdad that wasn't bombed or looted. It was this big factory complex, and it was pristine, untouched, when so little in the city was. As I walked up to the gate, there were these men with guns looking at me, and they seemed pretty panicked. But the second they realized I was an American, they got excited. The U.S. Army had taken over Baghdad a few days before, and these people had been waiting for an American, any American, to show up. They rushed me into the factory building. There is this remarkably huge lobby, and the entire staff of the factory was sitting there, looking bored. I eventually sat down with the general manager. He explained this was a government-owned children's shoe factory that happened to have a lot of employees who lived right nearby. So during the war, they were able to protect the place. He said they were all waiting, waiting for an order from the Ministry of Industry. This factory, like all government-owned factories in Iraq, didn't study the market to figure out which shoes to make based on what was selling. They waited for a fax from some bureaucrat in the Ministry of Industry that told them exactly how many shoes to make and in what colors and shapes and size. Now, as it happens, I had just been in the Ministry of Industry, or what was left of it. It was bombed out. It was this tall tower, one of the few tall office tower-like buildings in Baghdad, and it had been hollowed out by a precision bomb. So the shell of the building stood, but most of the interior was destroyed. I walked inside, which might not have been the smartest thing I've ever done, and the first couple floors were accessible. I remember water pouring from pipes and this mother and her two teenage kids coming up to us and asking if we found any copper wire. They were there to steal all the copper wire from the building, but it had all already been looted. I eventually found one small corner of the building that was relatively undamaged. And I came across a man in there shuffling papers, looking flustered, confused. He explained that he was one of those bureaucrats. He was one of the people who sent orders to the factories about what they should produce. I don't remember what his department did exactly. I think it might have been baby food, but I'm not sure about that. And he just looked around the office, waving and making clear, we're done. There is no longer a central control to this centrally controlled economy. So back at the shoe factory, I tried to explain this to the general manager to tell him about my day and that he was going to be waiting a very long time for that fax from the Ministry of Industry. I remember starting a little speech about how I didn't think the Americans were going to replicate Saddam's centrally controlled socialist economic system. Nobody was going to tell each factory how many shoes to make, that there was going to be something called a market with prices and supply and demand. And the manager was just lost. He didn't really understand anything that I was saying, and he didn't know what he could do other than wait for that fax. In the years since, I've always thought of that guy as someone understandably rooted in an old economic system, as stuck. He could only see the world through the lens of a system that is not coming back. 
and he had no idea how to function in a new system. But there were other people in Baghdad, and I met many of them, who got it right away. They figured out very quickly that there was now opportunity, that they would be able to make money and run businesses in a way that no Iraqi had, at least not for decades and decades. The first few months after the U.S. invasion, there was a lot of optimism. I I remember on... Karada Street, inside Karada Street, uh-huh. all the shops that suddenly opened, selling uh-huh. satellite TVs, yep. selling yep. washing machines, mm-hmm. selling microwaves. Yeah. And, like, it was crazy, just block after block after block. And it seemed like overnight, satellite TVs were everywhere. Did you have a satellite TV before the war? No, no. It's a, it's a crime to have a satellite TV before the war. It's, like, a huge crime. It could result in, like, a... Six months of prison, and then they put an X on your door that this guy is maybe have some ties with the opposition. So after the war, once you got a satellite dish, and every Iraqi home got a satellite dish, it was like the war ended on Thursday. It seemed like by the next Thursday, certainly by a month, every home you saw satellite dishes. Do you remember what your favorite show was? The show you couldn't believe was so good. Friends. Friends. Yeah, that's my best. I mean, believe it or not, you know, until now, sometimes I search it on YouTube and watch some of it and still laugh on it. This has become a crucial mental shorthand for me. I think of the Iraqi shoe factory as a model of people stuck in an old economic system, trying to apply that logic to an entirely new world and unable to see anything but devastation and fear in a world that no longer makes sense. And then there's the satellite TV salespeople, people who realize there is new opportunity. There are new things we can do. And yes, there's some fear and uncertainty, but there's also economic opportunity and even a chance for fun and joy. Because later I came to see the American economy and much of the global economy as remarkably similar. Our economic logic has shifted. It has changed completely. The central rules have been overturned and replaced with new ones. The difference is it didn't happen in a week through a war. It happened slowly over decades because of major changes in global trade and technology. A lot of us are like those factory workers. We're fiercely defending what came before, waiting for a return to the way the economy worked before automation and trade transformed everything. We're waiting for a fax from the Ministry of Industry that is never going to come. So what can we do? That's after the break. It took me quite a while to see that this change had happened. I came back from Iraq, I became a business reporter for NPR, and if I'm honest, I was really bored a lot of the time. It's hard to even remember, but 2004, five, and six, these were honestly really dull years for an economics reporter because everything was going pretty good, or at least it seemed to be. Now, I will have to admit that I am embarrassed about my reporting from those years and can say that I sure wish I had done more digging because I would have learned that we were experiencing a huge bubble and that bubble was about to burst. And also that we were undergoing a massive shift of wealth from poor to rich that was hurting a lot of Americans. There was a lie beneath what seemed to be a healthy economy. But I didn't see that. 
and neither could a lot of journalists and politicians and thought leaders. And then came the financial crisis. I'm sure you remember those days in September and then October and November of 2008. The financial crisis felt, for a while, a bit like now, as if the entire world stopped making sense. As if we lived in an entirely different country, a different system than we thought we had. Our civilization was on the brink of total collapse because of something we were trained to think was unimaginably boring and safe. Mortgage-backed bonds. As it happens, I had been building a team at NPR called Planet Money to report on complicated economic and financial and business news, and we had chosen a launch date. And the date we chose, just by coincidence, happened to be the day that the financial crisis exploded. And for the next several months, the team and I were on the front lines of this crisis, covering every bit of the horror. I had hoped for some drama in my journalistic life post-Iraq, but this was too much. I interviewed people whose lives had been ruined, who had despair. I have this memory of meeting a Marine in Brooklyn who had come back from Iraq himself and had been talked into a mortgage that he could not afford. His entire family was at risk of being homeless and bankrupt. And this tough Marine just crying as he told me his story. And that was happening to millions of Americans. There were days in that fall when very serious people were very seriously concerned about the end of civilization. And when it was all over, the one relief was, phew, that's probably never going to happen again. And then we had the coronavirus epidemic. And once again, we're facing a time when the economy is seen as far more fragile than any of us were prepared to realize. During those financial crisis days, I was also spending a lot of time talking with economists and historians and my personal favorite, economic historians, about what it all revealed about how our economy works and the deep pain that had been developing for decades. You could say the financial crisis of 2008 was the closest we had to the toppling of Saddam's statue. It was that in-your-face sign that our economy was now running according to completely different rules. But, and this is the but that defines the entire show, the economy definitely changed in a lot of bad ways, but also some pretty good ways. Hi, David. Hi, a pleasure to talk with you. That's David Otter. You don't have to talk so formal. We're friends. We can just talk like friends. Okay, dude. Remind me what you do for a living, and don't call me dude. (laughs) I'm a labor economist, Ford professor of economics at MIT, and I also and the co-director of the MIT Work of the Future Task Force. David and I became friends because we spent a lot of time together with a bunch of other economists and business school professors at MIT and Harvard, including Scott Stern, Karen Mills, Eric Brynjolfsson, Darren Oshimolu, and many others trying to understand how the economy had changed and what space workers and regular people could carve for themselves. David had a funny name for our team. The League of Justice. The League of Justice, yes. (laughs) Trying to present an optimistic view. You know, there's so much concern about what my colleagues and I call the robocalypse, the robotic apocalypse. 
and trying to make the point that there were challenges for sure, but that there's enormous opportunity. And you wouldn't want to think of, you know, all the tremendous technological advances that we're experiencing as purely a cost, like global warming, a problem we wish we didn't have. They have the potential to make our individualized and our societies better because they make us potentially much more productive. And with productivity comes resources, comes opportunity. I know that, at least for some of you, it's a hard shift to make from seeing good things in these forces that wreaked such havoc on the 20th century economy. And let's spend a minute celebrating that 20th century economy, because for a lot of people in the U.S. and around the world, it worked really, really well. If you got a decent education, if you got an okay entry-level job in some company, some career path, it was a pretty safe bet that you would be able to move from position to position getting promoted, getting raises, getting better gigs as time went on. Maybe you could become an entrepreneur and create your own business. But whatever you did, there was a very good likelihood that you would make more money when you were 60 than you did when you were 20, and your kids would make more money than you did. Now, that whole thing, the idea of making more money over time and generations making more money than previous generations, that is brand new in the history of human beings. For most of history, people had nothing like what we would call a job or a career path. Most people, the vast majority of folks before, say, 1900, were subsistence farmers trying to scratch out enough calories to survive. And since the dawn of cities, there have always been elites of one kind or another, royals and priests. And there were periods in history where there were people who had things that kind of looked like a modern job. There were craftspeople, bakers, brewers, blacksmiths. There were traders. There were bureaucrats. There were career soldiers and priests. But that was always a, a sideshow. It wasn't what most people were doing. Very, very, very few people had anything like a secure job with an ongoing salary. And for most people, education was irrelevant. Almost nobody went to school before 1900, and those that did became priests or bureaucrats. And even if you did somehow go to school, that didn't give you economic opportunity. It was the result of economic wealth. It was the result of being born into the right family. And for most people, this absence of a job, of an external source of income, meant that every day was filled with risk. But at the same time, there was complete stagnancy. A farmer in ancient Assyria 4,000 years ago had roughly the same quality of life as a farmer in medieval England. Anyone's life was probably pretty much the same as their great-grandparents, and their own great-grandkids would have lives that would be similar. But then, there was this massive change. All that's after the break. Work, the way we do it, the way we think about it, it has changed before. Basically, in that window from 1880 to 1940, new machines were invented, new ways to till soil, new ways to harvest crops, new fertilizers and pesticides started being used. All this meant that we could grow way, way more food with far fewer people doing the farming. 
There's a lot of historical examples and cases where we've made very consequential choices in the history of work, and some of those choices have worked out really well. The most recent disruptive change we underwent was the incredible rise in agricultural productivity that led to a massive decline in farm employment. You know, between 1880 and 1940, agricultural employment in the United States was declining at the rate of about a half a percentage point per year. So in other words, over the course of a decade, it would fall by five percentage points. So from, you know, between 1900 and 2000, it fell by 38 percentage points. And that created opportunity because obviously, you know, we were in a situation where now, you know, a few million farmers can feed an entire population of over 300 million citizens, but also meant that many people were no longer needed on the farm and they needed to find a new type of employment. And typically that type of employment would require more formal skills, would require literacy and numeracy. And the U.S. did something very radical, which is that many of the farm states mandated that all of their kids stay in school until age 16. And that was a time when a high school education was an elite education. If you had a high school education, it meant you could work as a clerk in a corporation. That word corporation, let's not let that slip by because the corporation may be the most important new institution. Economists sometimes call it a technology, a bigger technology than almost any high tech technology we can think of that has transformed our lives and the lives of almost everyone on earth for the last hundred years. Think about what it would have looked like to someone who grew up in the 19th century or the 17th century or any century before. The idea that you could get a job and then you would make money no matter what was happening outside in the world. And once you got that first job, you were on something called a career track where if things basically went reasonably okay and you were decent at what you did, you could expect to have a job with some degree of certainty for many years to come. One way to think about the modern corporation is it served as a buffer between the average person and everything that was happening outside the company, the weather, the market, the supply and demand stuff that drives an economy. You know, when you went to work at Procter & Gamble in, I don't know, 1953, you didn't have to worry too much about what third quarter sales of soap were doing in Kentucky. And you didn't have to worry about what was the price of glycerin and other major inputs. You had a job and your salary was something that was determined internally based on what the company needed, not what was happening out there. Now, most human beings, again, uh, never had that buffer. They were fully exposed to the vicissitudes of the market and more likely of nature, of weather. Most people could not survive two bad harvests in a row. I imagine if one of us went back in time to the Middle Ages or ancient Assyria or wherever in earlier times, yes, people would be totally amazed by our iPhones and airplanes and all the modern technology. But my hunch is the thing that would blow their minds the most is this simple idea of a job, the idea that you could go somewhere, sit down, by the way, all day, that there might be air conditioning, that would blow people's minds, and that you would just get paid and you could meet your basic needs of shelter and food and even this new concept called healthcare, and even have some money left over to sort of spend however you wanted. I think that would be the thing that would really, really shock people. 
But what's amazing is this radical shift that happened in less than a lifetime went so quickly from radical and new to sort of boring and expected. And that this idea that you would do well each year, you'd do a little better than you did before, and that over the course of your lifetime, you'd do a lot better than you did at the beginning of your lifetime, and that you would do better than your parents, and that your kids would do better than you. That was all new. That was because of this new economy. Part of the reason that 20th century corporations, without saying they're all awesome or anything like that, or even any of them are awesome, but that on balance, they made life better for the average person. That wasn't because they were charities or they wanted to. It was because the technology of the time meant that they could not get rich. The people who created corporations and ran corporations had no choice. If they wanted to make a lot of money, they needed a lot of workers. They needed workers in the factories. They needed workers in the accounting department and the legal department and the marketing department. And that is what has changed. Corporations are still doing well, but, and you probably know where this is going. The robocalypse, the robotic apocalypse. Yes, the robot apocalypse or just the general cost to the average person of automation basically means that those big corporations don't really need us as much anymore. There's something interesting. I mean, up until the COVID-19 pandemic, American manufacturing never really slowed down. It has grown steadily year after year after year. What has collapsed is American manufacturing jobs. Factories are producing a lot of stuff. They just don't need all those workers with all different levels of education and skill. What they do need is a bunch of really big machines and a relatively tiny number of people highly trained to operate those machines and fix those machines when they break. Now, I, I often find myself talking about factories and manufacturing because it's so easy to picture, at least for me, what it looks like inside a factory and how these economic forces are impacting life in a factory. But the same basic logic is happening in all sorts of industries. Lawyers and accountants and journalists and marketing and everything almost is being impacted by these same forces that the large corporations just don't need us as much. In short, the central logic of the 20th century economy has been destroyed just as much, just as explosively as the bombs that destroyed Iraq's Ministry of Industry. And this has created enormous fear, as it should, as any major transition does. A new economy has emerged. And this new economy is a lot less certain, contains a lot more risk, it's a lot more confusing. And I'm definitely not here to say, don't worry, everything's going to be great. Because for some people, it really won't be. The new economy, this passion economy, is very different. It requires a lot more thought and hustle, and there will be people left behind. But for some people, and I actually think that it's a lot of people, the passion economy will be way, way better. I'm not just talking about the 0.1% or the 1%. I'm talking about a lot of people will do much better. But they have to understand how this economy works, what this economy wants. And then you will learn that you can thrive in a way that nobody in history has thrived. It is not all bad. 
it's not even close to all bad. In fact, arguably, it's not even half bad, <laughs> but it is bad for a significant minority. So right now, about one third of labor hours in the U.S. economy are supplied by people with high school or lower education. For those individuals, I think the challenges are substantial and growing. On the other hand, for people who are professionals, technicals, managers, and especially people, as you said, who have special talents, the world has never been more exciting. All right. So here's why. Trade and technology, outsourcing and automation, they get rid of the routine, the boring, the standardized or the standardizable. And every job, no matter how skilled, no matter how highly paid, has boring parts, has routines, has standardization. That part is either gone or is going to be gone. But those are probably the things you don't like doing. And by not doing that stuff, the boring standardized stuff, you can focus instead on those special things that you can do that you love to do and that other people can't do and that computers can't do and that automation will never replace. That is how you can thrive. And COVID-19 has exacerbated these trends. We have for decades been wondering about a world, a future where we're all interconnected all over the globe, that physical space no longer matters. And it's always seemed, you know, five to 10 years in the future and never been here. Well, for terrible reasons, COVID-19 has brought that future to us and certainly has not gone smoothly and certainly is not something to be celebrated. But what it does mean is we now see what it's like to conduct work remotely with people all over the globe. In fact, even if you live down the block from a colleague, they might as well be halfway around the world. And we can pretty much guarantee that companies like Zoom and Apple with FaceTime and Microsoft with Teams are going to invest more and more and more to make this long-distance collaboration much, much better. No question, these remote tools have many, many downsides. I'm not here to say this is all awesome. But you know, what, whatever that thing is that you identify as your unique passion, your opportunity to thrive— it's just going to keep getting easier and easier to find customers and partners all over the world and find exactly those people who most get you, who most want the thing you bring to the table. Artificial intelligence, automation, global trade. Yes, there's a lot of things you do now that either they can do already or they'll soon be able to do. And that part of your work will probably disappear. But those same tools, artificial intelligence, automation, global trade, they can be harnessed. And that is what the passion economy is all about. We're going to talk about a lot of very pragmatic things, things that you can apply in your life and your business. We're going to get into specific industries. Sometimes industries that at first you're going to be like, wait, I have nothing to do with the fitness industry or agriculture. But over time, you're going to realize... Wow, there are lessons in all of these industries that apply directly to the challenges I'm facing right now. I want to make clear that for me, the passion economy is not like some side hustle. Like you're going to have an office job that's pretty much the same as you pictured, but then, you know, on the weekends you do your Etsy crafts. I don't see it that way. I think the passion economy is the new economy and that whatever you're doing now to get paid will eventually be automated and outsourced. Embracing the passion economy 
It's not like an optional extra thing. It's something that you need to start building into your life. You need to begin this constant probing of your passions and the customers who most crave what you have to offer. I think the rules also apply to people who are going to work for companies because corporations themselves are essentially mini economies where they're going to be demanding more unique benefits from their workers than ever before. So it is hard work, but it's fun work. It's meaningful work because it forces you to routinely ask, what are you doing that is meaningful to you and also meaningful to other people? And I can say truly that for all the upsides and all the downsides, I am so glad that I am alive right now and working in the passion economy. And I am so glad that I was able to identify all these people who feel the same way and to celebrate what they have learned and what they can teach us. I'm so excited to introduce you to them. The Passion Economy is a three Uncanny Four production. It's hosted by me, Adam Davidson, and produced by Lena Richards. Our music is composed and performed by Casey Halford. Our sound engineer is Gene Montalvo. Our executive producer is Laura Mayer. If you want to learn more about the theories in this podcast, check out my book, aptly named The Passion Economy. 